Hello and welcome to the special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. I think it's safe to say that over the first half of 2020, the world was in crisis. We can say that it was a health crisis, but quickly this situation led to other crises triggered by the economic fallout of all the COVID prevention measures. During that time, Salt and Light Media produced a TV series titled Faith in a Time of Crisis that I hosted. It was clear to us that everyone was affected by the global situation, and this included Catholics, particularly because our faith was impacted. Churches were closed, we were deprived of the sacraments, our trust in God was questioned, and we had to find new ways to live our Christianity. Today, on this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour, we revisit some of those conversations. One of them is with Sister Damien Marie Savino, a very good friend who is an environmental expert and a Franciscan sister of the Eucharist. She collaborated with me for our documentary series on the Church's teachings on the care for our common home titled Creation. It occurred to us that COVID was teaching us some faith lessons from Pope Francis' encyclical Laudato Si. Not only were we being forced to learn some of these lessons, but we were living them. So, Sister Savino helped us identify some of these faith lessons. That's coming up in about 20 minutes. At the end of the program, we will listen to a conversation about the crisis in Lebanon. On August 4, 2020, an explosion killed 200 people, injured 5,000, and left some 300,000 people homeless. For Lebanon, this came in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and in the middle of a very serious financial crisis. I spoke with Carl Haytu. He's the National Director for Catholic Near East Welfare Association Canada about the situation in Lebanon. That's in about 40 minutes. But we begin our program with a conversation I had about the plight of refugees during COVID with Dominique Godbu of Development and Peace Caritas Canada. We were all so worried about COVID that we forgot about the refugees. That's coming right up. Remember to visit us at saltandlighttv.org and to comment on what you hear on this program or to ask any questions, look for me, Deacon Pedro, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And now, let's go to Myanmar, to a Rohingya refugee camp. Very quickly into the COVID-19 pandemic, it was clear that news outlets were no longer covering the plight of refugees anywhere. Very quickly, we forgot about the people of Syria and Venezuela. Very quickly, we forgot about the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Yet, these people were not immune to the virus. In fact, they were more vulnerable to it. And in Bangladesh, they were hit by a cyclone and the crisis intensified. At the end of May 2020, I spoke with Dominique Godbu of Development and Peace Caritas, Canada, about how COVID-19 was affecting the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and about the aftermath of Cyclone Amphan. Here is part of that conversation. Um, for people that maybe do not remember the Rohingya refugee or were not familiar with that, can you remind us who are the Rohingya people? Yes, the Rohingya are an ethnic uh, minority uh, that are Muslim. Uh, they are from Myanmar, or, what we, or a country that we call also Burma. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have been uh, discriminated against uh, for the past uh, decades. They have been victims of uh, uh, waves of violence against them because they're not uh, recognized as nationals, according to the Myanmar uh, 
military, they are not national people, they come from Bangladesh, and so they should go back to Bangladesh. And so these waves of violence have occurred throughout the past decades, and mo most recently is the one that occurred in 2017, where more than 900,000 Rohingya people crossed the border from Rakhine State in Myanmar to settle in uh, Bangladesh in the district of Katsis Bazar. Right, so that would have been some of the images that people might remember from, as you said, two, three years ago, of people crossing crossing through rivers and 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 uh, and just to clarify, so you said that they are Muslim, but they're not considered uh, citizens of Myanmar. Is it because is it a religious thing? Is it because people of Myanmar, the majority, are is a Buddhist country? Um, I mean, it's a it's a mix of those uh, those reasons. I mean, there are some other uh, Muslims in the country that are that do have their own nationality. Okay. And um, I think it's really uh, due to their uh, position where they are located in the country um, that they say that those people cross from Bangladesh because they live at the border of Bangladesh, and mm. they are a minority. But there, there's. Uh, the the numbers are it's difficult to know exactly, but there are about two million Rohingyas, and um, and so there's a lot of Rohingya left in Myanmar that are still living in, in very squalid conditions, which we are also worried about, and we have no humanitarian right. access to these people. Right. I was going to ask you about that. So you said about nine hundred thousand are in camps in Bangladesh, and so maybe about the same amount remain in Myanmar. Is that what you're yes. saying? Yeah. Yes, yes. And let's not forget that there's also other ethnic minorities in Myanmar that are victims of violence um, and that are at the north of Myanmar or located at the, uh, the border of Thailand. And those Shan people, um, there's, the, the, there's a lot of other ethnic minorities uh, that suffer from discrimination because they are not recognized as nationals and don't have the, the Myanmar nationality. Right. Um, and not not to take away the focus from that region, but since you mentioned that there are other refugees, would you say that the situation of refugees around the world is a similar one? That, I mean, because they're in camps, or 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 my, I mean, there's a lot of internally displaced refugees that are not in camps. Um, that that uh, the situation has intensified for them because they're not considered, you know, nationals to any country. Yes, I mean, it definitely is an underlying uh, reason, and yes, it, it definitely um, it, it, has, it has similarities, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, I can think of the people in Syria. Um, there, there was a time there where we all, you know, in fact, after the Rohingya crisis, we, we all would hear every week news of, of, of people from the Middle East, mostly Syria, that are trying to, to, to move into Europe, but we don't even hear about that situation anymore. Do you have any any updates on that or the work that Caritas is doing in those regions? Yeah, I mean, Development and Peace uh, has uh, had the long-term partners and uh, programs in Syria and also in um, Jordan and Lebanon and in Turkey to mm. uh, to help those, uh, those Syrians that had to cross and leave their country because of the conflict, and we also have uh, pro humanitarian programs in Colombia for the Venezuelan refugees, yeah. 
And yes, those situations are similar in the sense that they all had to leave everything that they had, their belongings and their loved ones, and had to flee, not because they want to, they all want to go back to their own country. There's no doubt about that. If you talk to the Rohingya or to the Syrians, they will all say the same. I want to go back to my country. But in a peaceful country, um, and in a prosperous country, and those things don't exist anymore. Uh, it will take decades before Syria can be built again, or if it can be, uh, they can find a, a normal life. And you can tell that there's a really, there's a sense of desperation there that they'll ever find a normal life again. Mm -hmm. And for the Rohingya people, would they consider themselves uh, Burmese or that they belong in Myanmar? Because they're not being accepted in Bangladesh either. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, yes, they do consider themselves uh, Burmese. They say uh, that that's where they are from and they want to go back. I mean, we have to say uh, to commend the, the, the Bangladesh uh, authorities that did welcome all these people that in a in a, a very short moment of time, like in a few weeks, with floods of people that cross the border and they welcome them. And Bangladesh is a very poor country and they have their own, their own problems, yet they still open their arms and welcome them. Of course, they, they are welcoming them, but in but, refugee camps. So yeah. in situation where they're not allowed to get out of the camps and they're not allowed to work, and until very recently, we're not allowed to have access to education. And right. so because they really want to keep the situation temporary, they yeah. want they want to make sure that these people will go back to Myanmar at some point. Yeah. Um, just just so that people understand this situation a little better, I don't know if, if, if you know, what is the population of Bangladesh? So if there's 900,000 refugees, how does that compare with the overall population of Bangladesh? Um, it's a good question. I don't know it by uh, at the top of my head, but Bangladesh is a very popular, one of the most populous country in the world, okay. and so and so in a sense, it's it's not it, it it's not as if it happened in Canada, for example. Right. You know the proportion, but it's yeah. it's just compared to their situation. They're already very vulnerable, mm -hmm. and and they don't have the health facilities or the economic backbone. To, to offer the services that all those people need. Yeah. And just also the fact that these people don't speak the language and there's all sorts of, of hurdles like that that, you, that they need to consider. Um, and, and so that's why they really they keep saying that the situation is temporary and they want to uh, ensure that the, the, the refugees will go back to Myanmar. Yeah, temporary. It's been three years. Um, now that we're in the this COVID nineteen situation, um, do you know how how the situation in general is in Bangladesh? Before we talk about the situation in the camps, how do you know how the the coronavirus crisis is affecting the whole country? Uh, yes, I do. I mean, so there was a general lockdown of the country that was declared on March twenty third, mm -hmm. and they call it uh, general holidays. And so this lockdown uh, means uh, is similar to uh, every lockdown, that, uh, including the one that we have in Canada. So people have to work from home and uh, social distancing and, and shops are closed. 
and um, there has been um, some transmission, uh, quite a bit of transmission, in fact, but they have so much limited capacity in terms of testing um, that uh, most people say that it's not representative of the actual situation. Like mm -hmm. it's a, like I said, it's a populous country, populous country, and so um, social distancing is not uh, possible in every case. And also, people have to think about their livelihoods if they're going to uh, and just surviving. And so, if they want to have access to food, then they'll go and if, if that means uh, meeting people, and they they will do so. You know, they don't have they can, they don't have the luxury of ordering their food at home. And so that's also a reality that they have to face. Yeah, of course. I know I was, you know, we started off talking that no no one is reporting on what's happening in, to refugees or in refugee camps, but really no one's really reporting what's happening in any poor country in general. Um, and you had mentioned this already, that, it, that it's a very densely populated area. So how is that um, intensifying, I guess, the challenge in terms of preventing these cases 13 cases, but how quickly before those 13 become, you know, 300? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right that social distancing is not really possible. And so it, it, prevention was is really still the key in the sense that mm -hmm. communicating with the communities and making sure that they have the right information and that they understand the situation. And so to make sure that they follow um, the, the guidelines. Mm -hmm. And so to wash their hands frequently, even though, I mean, it's okay. obviously this is, yeah, but Caritas Bangladesh is providing wa water points and okay. uh, portable uh, washing, wa hand washing stations. Patience. Yes, and they are training volunteers to mm -hmm. go, Rohingya volunteers to go door to door and to make sure that everybody understands the situation and what they have to do. And they are asking people to stay inside their shelter as much as possible. That but obviously, yeah. yes, the, with the heat, I mean, the heat in those shelters, um, it, it's, it, it's quite, uh, it, <laughs> nobody would be able to stay all day in, in that, in that shelter. And so of course there's, yeah, there's, it, it's gonna. It, it could be very catastrophic, to be honest, if it actually spreads uh, in the camps. Yeah, I can't imagine. So I guess there's also a lot of uh, education happening, teaching people about, uh, you know, using hand sanitizer. I don't know if that's even available, but the water washing. Are they providing face masks? Is that something that's an option? Yes, yes, they are uh, providing, uh, or they are asking asking them to use their own kind of homemade masks and, tra and training them to do so. But yes, awareness messages are the key, especially yeah. to combat misinformation. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of information going on and people have kind of these uh, ideas, false ideas about the virus, for example, that it, that uh, if they catch them and they go to seek, uh, to, if they catch it, sorry, and they, they go and seek, uh, and seek medical help, um, that uh, people are the, the medical people are going to kill them, and mm. there there was these these ideas like that, and so they wanted to hide their symptoms and not and and not go and get uh, medical uh, assistance, and yeah. so those those are the, the the things that we need to combat every day to make sure that mm. that they have the right information. 
mm-hmm. um, to to uh, try to um, combat the spread of the virus. Right. Uh, Pinto mentioned something else that I had not thought about. He talked about how because the, their nutrition is not very good, their immune systems are very poor. Um, how, I mean, I guess that means that we need to help feed them better. How difficult is that? Yeah, I mean, that's they've been um, dependent on food assistance from uh, the World Food Program since the beginning. And so from the UN agency, uh, it's feeding them every day for the past years. And so that's, that's, that's the reality. And of course, uh, it's limited what uh, the agency can distribute to all these people. And so, yes, they, they have um, a weakened uh, immune system. This means that unlike in Canada, for example, where we see that the people that catch it and that develop complications are over seven year old. Well, in fact, for these ref- refugees, it, it will probably be anybody that can have complications due to the underlying health conditions that they have. Interesting, because of and as simple as poor nutrition um, and clean water. Um, you mentioned something earlier, and I think that people might even remember photos from previous years where there's been, uh, uh, you know, flooding. This region is is very vulnerable to tropical storms, uh, cyclones. There's one that just hit uh, recently, uh, Cyclone Amphan. How has that complicated the situation? Um, it has complicated the situation because uh, evacuation is not an option in the refugee camp. And so, uh, again, they have to stay inside their shelter or uh, the community shelters that are in the camps, such as Caritas Bangladesh has 10 or 11 of them uh, mm-hmm. across the camps, are converted into uh, cyclone shelters. But then that means that all these people come together in very close quarters, and that's not a good idea mm-hmm. uh, given COVID. And so it is complicated, but luckily... Uh, the the storm did not uh, hit hard in the refugee camps. It did okay. it did affect in India and in some coastal area of Bangladesh, mm-hmm. but the refugee camp was not hit uh, too strongly this time. But right. it is it is monsoon season starting, and yeah. it's uh, definitely a concern uh, for all humanitarian actors in the camps. And Caritas Bangladesh um, has. Uh, has emergency shelter stocks available and so ready to distribute, uh, mm-hmm. you know, shelter kits if shelters are damaged. Um, mm-hmm. other, other actors are ready to distribute food or, you know, so if a, shel- a, a cyclone hits, the humanitarian community will be there. But does yeah. it mean we'll have to start over from the beginning? That, that would just be a nightmare situation. And it's so hard and it's like, I guess, not to to compare because it's not compare comparable at all, but we think the coronavirus it's so hard because we don't know when it's going to end. But think of the situation of these refugees; they don't know when their refugee situation is going to end. And some people, you know, it's not like they they're going to be refugees for three years. They could be refugees for twenty years. Um, children might be born and grow old in a camp, and that's maybe what's different about the refugee situation nowadays. That was a conversation I had with Dominic Godbout of Development and Peace Caritas Canada in May 2020.
We spoke as part of our series, Faith in a Time of Crisis. You can watch all those interviews at saltandlighttv.org slash faith in a time of crisis. Coming up at the end of the show, another crisis, this one in Lebanon. But first, lessons from Laudato Si. So stay tuned. Pope Francis proposed that the week of May 6th to the 23rd every year be celebrated as Laudato Si week. In 2020, this week happened in the middle of a huge pandemic that forced us to change our habits. For our program, Faith in a Time of Crisis, we decided to celebrate Laudato Si week by looking at some of the lessons of our faith as expressed in the encyclical Laudato Si that we had been learning during these COVID times. And in order to help us identify some of these lessons, I spoke with Sister Damien Marie Savino. She's been on the Salt and Light Hour many times before and also on many Salt and Light productions. Some of you will know her from our documentary series, Creation, that I produced and hosted. Sister Damien was my very close collaborator and consultant for the series. She is now the Dean of Science and Sustainability and Associate Professor of Engineering at Aquinas College in Michigan. She's also a Franciscan Sister of the Eucharist. Here is part of our conversation from May 2020. So for people that maybe are not familiar with the encyclical, can you tell us a little bit uh, about Laudato Si? What is Laudato Si? Well, as you said, it's an encyclical, which is a weighty document coming from the Pope, the first full encyclical that we have on environmental issues. And the name Laudato Si comes from the vernacular Italian that came from St. Francis of Assisi's praise of creatures. Right. So um, it's a wonderful, I guess, encyclical expressing how we are to praise creatures in today's world. And the subtitle is care for our common home. So there's a strong theme of how we are to care for our common home. So what would you say uh, would be the main message or, or key messages from Laudato Si? I, a couple, I would say. One is um, that the Pope strongly emphasizes three major relationships for which we're responsible. So love of God, love of our neighbor, and love of creation. And he includes that, that triad throughout the encyclical. So we have responsibility for all three. Right. Another major message is, I think, integral ecology, what he calls integral ecology, which is kind of a marriage of natural ecology and mm -hmm. human ecology, that we are um, responsibilities to help both of those ecologies to flourish and to recognize how interconnected they are. Okay. Um, and um, then I think a third, maybe could I say one more message might yeah, be just sure. um, the need for conversion, ecological conversion but an ecological conversion that's also kind of in interior conversion in us. So a spiritual conversion that goes with the ecological conversion. Right. And these, sorry, these lessons are, are not necessarily easy for a lot of us to learn, but do you think then that, that these are lessons or there are other lessons from Laudato Si that we are, uh, that we're being forced to learn during this crisis? Oh, certainly. And I think, um, the crisis has been very difficult and we're still in the middle of it. So now I would say our reflections are sort of living in the middle of the crisis. How, how do we navigate this? So I think the, the document is really a strong encyclical about kind of living with 
creation as it suffers and living with humans as they suffer. So the Pope uses the terms listening to the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. So I think there's certainly that sense of in this time when we can't get out, how do we listen? And then I would say also, how do we accompany others in this crisis? And then what um, sacrifices are required of us and how can we make those sacrifices uh, fruitful for helping others and for our, growing ourselves too? Okay, so it's so you're saying that that we're we're learning maybe how to develop a culture of listening. Can we can I say it that way? How to develop a culture sure. of of accompanying and how to develop a culture of sacrificing? Yes, and I think it's another way maybe of looking at Laudato Si in the midst of this crisis. Uh, a way in which it might help us to navigate as we try to to struggle with the difficulties of it. And I think creating a culture of care requires the listening, the accompanying, and the sacrificing. Yeah. Um, let's, let's look at listening uh, a little deeper. What, what do you mean by listening? I think we understand maybe listening to each other. How, how else can we listen? What are we learning about listening? Well, Listening, so if we think of our three major relationships with God, with others, and with creation, how well are we listening in each of those relationships? We could start with that. So how well are we listening to God? And perhaps before this, pre-COVID times, we were so busy that it was hard to get the time to listen. And now a lot of those distractions have been uh, stripped away. Can we then recapture uh, maybe better ears to hear what God is calling in our lives and how God is calling us to care for others or care for creation. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think there is a need, a greater need for contemplation uh, in terms of listening, listening to God and listening to what comes up out of our ourselves in this time. And I was very struck by an interview that Pope Francis gave, I think just a few days ago, and he mentions the importance of contemplation during this time, and particularly of recovering our memory. And what, what does he mean by that? And he says, well, every crisis is a danger and an opportunity, and the opportunity is to move out of the danger. And then he says, and contemplation is how we can navigate our way out of that danger, how we can capture the opportunity. So um, I think that we, we need to remember and not forget after the crisis is over. So in the new normal, remember the, the, the messages and what we've learned during this time. Remember how beautiful it is perhaps to have more time for others or to be able to go out and take walks and re reconnect with creation. Because he does lament in this interview that we are, we're disconnected from creation and this could be a time to reconnect with mm -hmm. creation. Um, right. And yeah. so. No, go I, ahead. I think then, um, and then he, he mentions that we might, if we're able to reconnect with creation and really listen, and it's the springtime, so everything is coming alive again. Uh, and normally we might just drive by it and not notice it. But if we can begin to reconnect, we might then also realize, gee, I've, you know, I've been mistreating it, or I really love this particular area and I really need to, to do something to care for it better mm -hmm. or to care for my yard better or to garden better. Um, yeah. So I think that contemplation 
And also, you know, when we contemplate, we can see God's footprints in creation. And that's something that maybe we just don't take time for when we're so busy with everything. Yeah. So, so listening to that creation. And then, of course, many, many also in the papers have been talking about, well, there's less carbon dioxide production. So air quality in some of the cities globally is improved. The animals are coming back. And actually, I was out walking this morning and I saw a bobcat. And it's just that it's so particularly quiet. And he didn't even see me. And so I just got to watch him for a while. I've never seen uh, that kind of, and the turkeys the other day came right up to our front. They never come so close to our home. Usually there are more cars around and more people visiting. Right. So I think just having some of those experiences really help us to listen to that message yeah. of love that's in nature. Mm -hmm. that, uh, so we're listening, uh, you said we're listening to each other more. We're listening to the poor. Uh, we're listening to the sick, to the elderly, maybe a little better. We're listening to creation, to the earth. We're listening to God. And I think contemplation also uh, kind of implies that we're listening to our, our ourselves, what's in, written in our hearts uh, as well. Can you explain, Sister, the connection between listening and respect? Because we talk about respecting creation. Yes, and the need for respecting creation as well as respecting others. Um, so I think respect comes from the Latin respectare, so to re-inspect or re-look at. So at the heart of respecting creation or respecting another person is listening to them, getting to know them, taking the time. And if we don't first listen to who they are and what they're trying to say to us, I mean, don't they say most um, broken relationships come from a lack of listening? Everybody's yeah. trying to get their own word in without listening to what the word is what the other is trying to speak or even listening to body language listening right now to what's happening in nature as the buds are swelling and the orchards are blossoming and the dogwoods are coming out it's um so i think that kind of attentiveness and listening very carefully to what that piece of creation is saying or what the person is saying and what the needs are of that person right. and i think one thing the the COVID situation has done which is really quite beautiful is increase our capacity to listen to the needs of others. So maybe we, we need to listen to creation, but also to others. So the cry of the poor, so many people are reaching out to others that they would normally not think of. You know, all these groups that are preparing food baskets for pantries or dropping them off on the doorstep of an elderly neighbor or purchasing food from a restaurant from whose owner they know, and they're trying to help that owner to, to stay in business. You know, they're small things, but they're showing that people are really have their ears and their eyes and all their senses attuned to the needs of the other. Yeah. And so I think that's really a wonderful um, experience that we're having at this time that we don't want to forget, that we want to really burn in our memories. Yeah. I think, I think, think yes, yeah, I think you're right that we're, we're not just, I hate to say that we're, we're not being forced to, to listen. I think we're, we're learning to listen and we're actually doing a pretty good job. We are listening better. And it makes me think of, about the second lesson because that listening, I think, is leading directly to, uh, accompanying, which was the second lesson that you, you talked about. How do you, what's the connection mm -hmm. between listening and, and accompanying? Well, I think as humans, you know, in our best humanity, we want to be empathetic. We, we want to be with others. And when we listen, 
And suddenly we think, oh, wow, that's what this person needs. Or that that's what this person is saying to me. Then we want to kind of be with them in that. And so that accompanying is so important for creating a culture of care, I think. And um, so in Laudato Si, the, the Pope uses, it has a strong theme of solidarity as being an important component of how we care, care for creation and for others. So that solidarity of that makes us want to kind of walk along with the other person. And mm -hmm. I, it makes me think of uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth once said something like, you know, as a society, we're becoming more global um, and it makes us neighbors, but it doesn't necessarily make us brothers. And right. what solidarity is about is building that fraternity, like so that mm -hmm. a person does become a brother, a neighbor does become a brother. And it seems like with out of our own desire, as you say, not being forced, a lot more of that is happening. I'm not yeah. minimizing where where there have there are difficulties, but I think a lot more fraternity is is happening. Um, and we might be realizing even simply like if if the document talks so much about reducing consumption and not treating others and as throwaway in our culture, we're we're doing that just by our nature right now and trying to care for others or accompany others because i don't need to go out to a mall and go shopping maybe i need to have a zoom call so i can be present to my mother or to my cousins or my family or my best friend mm -hmm. um, so i'd rather do that and i can't go out and what i hope is that we'll remember this afterwards it will take more time for people rather than for things or for consumption yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I, I don't think we need to give examples of how the whole world is coming together uh, with with expressions of, of care for each other. And, and I think we even hear it in the news where normally you turn on the news and it's all bad news. But in fact, we turn on the news in the last couple of months and it's usually it's positive news of how people are helping each other. And there's all these 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 good news stories. Um, is there a spiritual connection? Yes, and I want to be sure to kind of emphasize that because we we have to do all we can do humanly in terms of caring for others, caring for creation, but we also need to keep God in the picture. It, how much are we letting God, how much are we letting Christ accompany us during this time? And it's very striking in the readings for Mass that this is the time where during Easter and the days after Easter where Christ is walking with the, the disciples on the road and he's listening to them and and you know asking them questions and then he walks with them accompanies them on the road and then they often end up eating together after that and eating is another way i think of accompanying yeah. which we're doing a lot more of now too people are eating together perforce mm -hmm. uh, but discovering the benefits of that but so i think we have to also remember let's let christ accompany us on the journey and then he will speak to us in our times of contemplation. He will speak to us and show us how we are to care for others or what we might need to change in ourselves so that we can better care for others or care for creation. Yeah. Um, the third lesson that you mentioned had to do with sacrifice. What That might be a little more difficult for people, although I think that we're doing it instinctively. What, what are we learning about sacrificing? Yes. Well. Uh, the encyclical talks about less is more. So 
Definitely, I think we're learning that message now, and I really hope we can remember some of it, the benefits of the less. And, you know, there's a long tradition in the in the Catholic or the spiritual tradition of fasting even, and we're being forced to fast in many ways right now. We're, we're being forced to fast from Mass mm -hmm. and um, fast from going out on Friday nights or going to restaurants whenever we want and that sort of thing. Yeah. But I think realizing that that mystery of fasting or of sacrificing, that the other side of the sacrifice is the gift or a deepening of love that um, can come out of that sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that mystery of sacrifice and Pope Francis has used uh, the term contagion of hope. Can we make this into a contagion of hope? So we, you know, we, we recognize the tremendous suffering of this contagion, this biological mm -hmm. contagion, and we want to accompany others in that. And then can we somehow by our own sacrifices, by our own reaching out, our own increasing love, become a contagion of hope for those who are suffering so intently. And it could be those who are suffering physically. It could be those who are suffering because they have no work right now. Um, right. They're very concerned about jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, suffering from broken relationships that the, that have maybe that has intensified during this time. So by our sacrifice and our accompanying, we hope that we maybe can help alleviate that suffering, that we can yeah. um, bring up hope to others. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, in Laudato Si, one of my favorite parts of it is in the, the last chapter where he's talking about ecological conversion. Mm -hmm. And he talks about if you do some small thing out of love for creation, like turning the lights down or using a little bit less electricity, if you do that, even though it's small, but it's out of love, that is a beautiful act. And that's an act of integral ecology. That's a conversion. So when you think about this idea of a contagion, it's spread in the negative way so quickly from one person who started this, um, that poor person, now all over the world. But on the positive side, one person with a hopeful gesture or a small sacrifice, a loving gesture that comes out of that sacrifice, could a contagion start, you know, and a million sacrifices. Now we get some real something yeah. really happening. Yeah, for and, sure. uh, um, Sister, conversion. I think that maybe that's the word that I'm taking from this whole conversation. Um, that that we are learning we're learning something that means that we're converting can you maybe give us some final thoughts about the idea of e ecological conversion yes i think if conversion involves a turning away from and a turning toward and we've been asked to turn away from many things and hopefully now we're turning toward this kind of integral ecology we're talking about and i wonder if i could just read a quote from laudato si that is just so beautiful on this yeah and he's talking about ecological conversion, calls for a number of attitudes which together foster a spirit of generous care, full of tenderness. And that's what we need for others right now, that tenderness. First, it entails gratitude and gratuitousness, a recognition that the world is God's loving gift, and that we are called quietly to imitate his generosity and self-sacrifice and good works. And that's what we really need to do right now. And then he quotes Matthew, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. It also entails a loving awareness that we are not disconnected from the rest of creatures 
but joined in a splendid universal communion. And we know now how interconnected we are. That's certainly a message from COVID. As believers, we do not look at the world from without, but from within, conscious of the bonds with which the Father has linked us to all beings. By developing our individual God-given capacities, an ecological conversion can inspire us to greater creativity and enthusiasm in resolving the world's problems and in offering ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And that's what we re need right now, the creativity, the sacrifice, and the enthusiasm to care for others in this way, to care for creation in this way. And it all came from God in the first place. Mm -hmm. Good, thank you. That's a good place to end, I think, uh, leaving, leaving Pope Francis with the final word. That was part of my conversation with Sister Damien Marie Savino from our series, Faith in a Time of Crisis. You can watch the full interview at saltandlighttv.org. I'm Deacon Pedro, and this is a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. You can subscribe to the program wherever you get your podcasts or listen at saltandlighttv.org. Coming up, Lebanon in crisis, so don't go anywhere. On August 4th, 2020, a massive chemical explosion ripped through Beirut's port area and downtown, killing at least 200 people and injuring 5,000. The blast, equivalent to a 3.3 magnitude earthquake, was felt as far away as the island of Cyprus and caused extensive damage as far as 9 kilometers away from the blast throughout the capital city of Lebanon, leaving some 300,000 people homeless. This catastrophe came in the midst of another crisis caused by COVID-19, which itself happened during one of the country's worst financial crises. To tell us more about the situation, I spoke with Carl Haytu. He's the National Director for Catholic Near East Welfare Association Canada. Here is part of that conversation. So um, you're you're in touch with, with your, your staff down in Beirut. What is the situation in Beirut right now? Yes, yesterday morning we uh, we talked with Michel Constantin and his team of 11 staff and uh, uh, like they said, they've never seen something like this. It's like going into hell. Uh, very, very terrible. It's uh, everybody's affected. Everybody's family is affected. Uh, the, the, the city is chaos, you know, totally chaotic. Uh, the country is on its knees. Um, people are, are really, really under shock, it's, it's, it's to say the least. And now are struggling because after after all that time, already several days uh, of this, it's very difficult to organize immediate aid. You know, you cannot right. just find food anywhere. You cannot find supplies anywhere. You have to uh, uh, trying to understand who's who, who still have the capacity to deliver the aid. Uh, so, yeah. so our staff have been working uh, over time with many other uh, partners to try to really reach out to people uh, through a very serious assessment and responding as quick as possible, in particular for food distribution. Right. As you know, the explosion, the blast, has destroyed three months of uh, grain supplies to the country. And wow. so, so you know, people now don't necessarily have uh, those 300,000 people that you're talking about, don't have mm -hmm. access to their fridge, they don't have right. access to their food. Anyway, it's been damaged, there's been no electricity, meat is spoiled, all that is gone. 
So, you know, people are struggling just for food right now. Yeah. And, and people, you know, are struggling like anywhere else. Uh, there's diabetes people, people with uh, pressure problems, and they, they need to have access to their insulin, to their medicine, to everything else. And that's right. problematic as well. Yeah. So Is it's it it's uh, it's pretty bad. It's, it's bad, bad, bad. Uh, our staff was, was really pretty clear about this. Uh, some of them have been through the Civil War of 1975 to 1990. Mm -hmm. And uh, and they've never seen such a blast, such a massive destruction mm -hmm. uh, like this. They they just can't believe it. Yeah, is it fair to say that before the explosion, people were already struggling because of COVID? What oh, totally. But what was the situation before COVID? Well, the you know the country has been struggling economically speaking. I mean, it's the third indebted country in the world. Okay, and so right there alone, when you owe so much money. Um, from to the outside world, it's very difficult in the banking, enterprise, business, uh, and so it's been already uh, very complex. Uh, also, with uh, 30 years of the same people ruling the country, uh, with the sectarian kind of agreement they took after the civil war of 1990, right. uh, any government after such a period to be in place it will become uh, inefficient. And so what we see happening is political crisis, economic crisis. I mean, the, the Lebanese money is worth nothing. Banking right. system are all closed right now. Nobody can have access to their money. And so so before even the COVID, us, our organization at Kenewa, we were already planning to have uh, programs to help out the high number of new poor in Lebanon. Um, and, and here we're not talking about the refugee crisis where over one million Syrian over the last uh, seven years have showed up at the door I know. of, of, I know. Uh, of uh, Lebanese, and the Lebanese have been great to welcome them, to care for them, but, but it's been too much. Yeah. The country is falling apart right. even before COVID arrived, COVID uh, accentuated that, and now this blast is like... Yeah, that's before COVID. So, and do you know what the situation, the COVID situation was for Lebanon in yeah, terms of cases? Terrible. Did the uh, government, were, were there restrictions? Did the government shut down? I mean, of that course. Was, yeah. All the same kind of things that happened to Canada, mm -hmm. uh, all those restrictions started to happen over there as well. But how can you do this? Uh, you've seen, now we see a lot of pictures of, of downtown Beirut, for example. People don't live in bungalows like in Canada. They live in condos. Mm -hmm. uh, they're all close to one another. If you go to the poor neighborhood where the refugees are, I mean, sorry, there's no clean water to wash your hands every two minutes. Um, to have access to masks, forget about that. You, nobody can have access to masks uh, in grand quantity, yeah. uh, you know, distancing. Everybody's close to one another all the time. Yeah. And so so it's been very difficult. And unfortunately, the virus has been picking up. Right. Uh, jobs have been lost. Uh, shops being closed. Hospital overburdened. So all of that were already in existence when the blast happened. Right. And right. so taking care now of, of injured um, and et cetera. I mean, just in Beirut, four hospitals were demolished. Uh, many of them Christian hospitals right. serving all, and and we were supporting them by the way, and, and yeah. many of the different support their healthcare. So so that's the the, the sad situation is Lebanon did not need this blast no, at all. No, it was no. already so complicated ahead of time. Yeah, um, the protests. So uh, there's these protests that have been. At least the impression we get here is that they were sparked because of the explosion. But you're saying that the protest began almost a year ago. Absolutely. Last October, 
uh, people started going in the streets, um, you know, yeah. because they had enough. And that's where the money started to lose its, its ground. Okay. That's where the banking system started to fall. Uh, but that, that started much before. Mm -hmm. I, I remember going to Lebanon around 2014-15, and it was what we call the garbage collection crisis. Um, just to show you how inefficient the government had become, um, it, it, from one year to another, when I went to Lebanon, the garbage pile had become two-story high in Beirut alone, all over Beirut, all over Beirut, because the different faction controlling the garbage couldn't agree on what to share. The one would lose too much. So in order not to, in order not to create battles and fights between each other, then they decided to, 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 to wait and wait and wait. And then their solution, Pedro, do you know what it was? To put the garbage in the Mediterranean Sea. That's where all the garbage of Beirut is going into right now. Yeah. So, so, right. so things like that, that's only one example of many that has acerbated, that has yeah. created tension with the population. Right. And yeah, as you and said, as you said, any any country, any government that is in power for 30 years is is going to have problems. Um, would you say then that this government is not equipped to deal with this current crisis? No, it's not. It's not equipped. It's not equipped to 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 deal with garbage. It's not equipped to 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 nothing. Look, who's who's cleaning up the city right now? It's the people. Yeah. You know, and and to their credit, uh, at the same time, Pedro, I'd like to ask to add something is. You know, Lebanon, when Jean Paul II went there, he says, you know, yeah. Lebanon is, is a message, a message right. to the Middle East, a message to the world about how it can be, how peace can be, how people can mm -hmm. collaborate, respecting mm -hmm. one another, because the, before anything else, they're human being in front of God. Mm -hmm. And so that message has been a reality to a certain level in Lebanon. It's been a political democracy. We can say whatever we want about it, and yes, the critiques are right. The the thing that's good about it, it's kept peace. Yeah. It kept peace, and it kept the church to dialogue. I mean, the Patriarch Ray of the Maronite Church is inviting all church leaders every year, and they dialogue constantly about the affairs of the of the country, mm -hmm. how to keep mm -hmm. and maintain mm -hmm. peace, mm -hmm. and that's such and so important. Yeah. But the problematic is you and I know, and, and everybody listening to us, that the interest of Lebanon, not necessarily the interest of the rest of the big power in the world, that have been letting the Syrian conflict breaking, uh, breaking down to the worst peril right. of violence, of selling weaponry, getting rich out of it, let's be frank. And, uh, and so what happened is then instead of putting millions of dollars into maybe developing a good democracy, in Lebanon that could be a great example to other nations, they're uh, accentuating division, battling fields, attacks that are becoming proxy war in Syria, before that in Iraq. Yeah. And let's face it, the 1975-90 war in Lebanon was also a, mm -hmm. a proxy war. So, yeah. so what we see happening is if we really want to have peace in the Middle East, the um, governments of the world, like Macron has done in visiting uh, for, uh, visiting Lebanon uh, just two days after everything happened mm -hmm. with the blast is to invest in Lebanon, is yeah. to work with the leadership, with the people to create a real democracy in Lebanon as the people want it and say thank you for all those different agreements you took in the past, but now the time is there to show an example. But if the nations of this world continue to divide, to invest in armament and mm -hmm. war, 
as Pope, uh, as, as our Pope Francis said, says, people come and visit me, those big guys from Russia and the United States and Europe come and visit me and they talk about peace. Then as soon as they get out of my office, they sell their weapons and wage war. I mean, sorry, that's double talk and it has to stop. No, yeah, you're right. I'm glad. Wow. Um, I, I hope that we have some politicians listening to you talking right now because that's very good advice to invest in a democracy of a nation like Lebanon. And I'm glad that you mentioned the, that beautiful quote from John Paul II that, that Lebanon is not as much a nation, but it's a message. Um, and we need to invest in that message. Um, what would you say that this particular, well, maybe all three, the coal crisis situation, what has been the impact on the Christian communities? You mentioned it's 40% of the population is Christian. Yes, uh, absolutely. It, you know, before 1975, it was up to 60%. And so, so because of the war, uh, the civil war of that time, 20% mm -hmm. of the Christians left. Okay, some came back. Mm -hmm. uh, to reclaim their villages and, and uh, land and all of that. But in general, the church has been very strong. You know, all the churches of the Middle East are represented in Lebanon, mm -hmm. uh, almost, you know. And so, yeah. uh, so, so they've always been very strong. The Maronite church, of course, being the, the strongest of the church uh, in numbers and in influence. Right. Uh, Lebanon is the only place in the Middle East where Christians still play a major political and economic role. I was going to ask you that. I was yeah. going to ask you that. They have political parties. The current president is a, is a Christian Maronite. Uh, and so, so you know, when you look at that, the, the Christians have been played, uh, have been playing a very important role uh, politically, mm -hmm. economically, but also um, on a social level, social services. They have a whole uh, number of religious communities that have their own specialty in healthcare, in school, helping the handicapped, the mental uh, uh, disabled. Uh, and so forth. And so, mm -hmm. and so us as an organization at Kenewa, we've been working with the church, we've been yeah. walking with the church all along the different crisis or in time of no crisis. Mm -hmm. Lebanon has a period of no crisis. And the church has played that role, an important role to reach out to all, not just to Christians, but to all, to show by example mm -hmm. that uh, it can work if we respect one another. Yeah. And so access to school, uh, education, access to healthcare, access to job is for mm -hmm. all, not just for a group. Yeah, uh, exactly. And so, so that's why the Christians have always played an important part in Lebanon, as yeah. they have all over the Middle East, by the way. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. it's why our mandate as, as an agency has been to walk with, has been to accompany the church and give them the mm -hmm. tools to, to do so. So, yeah, uh, yeah. so yes, the Christians play and still play, I hope, an important part in there, but if yeah. I'm telling you, if if uh, the country goes into a civil war again, and the chances are it might go there, um, yeah. because not everybody is in the streets rallying against the government, uh, and so there are other groups that don't like what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. If moving into this, uh, be, be sure another 20 to 25 percent of the Christians will leave again, and that will impact not only on the Christians, but on peace that can be happening in right. Lebanon. That was part of a conversation I had with Carl Haytu, National Director of Catholic Near East Welfare Association, Canada. It was done as part of our Faith in a Time of Crisis series that you can watch at saltandlighttv.org slash faith in a time of crisis. And that brings us to the end of the program this week. Remember to visit our website, saltandlighttv.org, in order to find out everything you want to know about us and how you can support our ministry. You can subscribe to the Salt and Light Hour wherever you get your podcasts. 
be sure to give us lots of stars and a good review so that other people can also find the Salt and Light Hour. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Write to me. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Deacon Pedro. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Salt and Light.